Good morning. It's an honor to be here. My name is Jason Bartholomew, and I'm the senior high pastor. And I uh, have enjoyed getting to know these very seniors who are up here, um, who we just commissioned. What a great um, time for them. And, and we're proud of the parents also who have, who have helped them with that. Um, I had the opportunity to take several st- groups of students like those to Israel um, and get to show them um, where the Bible, um, where, where events of the Bible took place. And it was an incredible time um, being able to go there. And through those travels, I, had, I only had one guide that we always used. We just really loved this man. He was a man of God. His name is Aron, and he is uh, he's a Messianic Jew. So he is Jewish by heritage, but he is a believer in Christ. He believes that Yeshua, or Jesus, is the Messiah. And um, as a guide, he's, it's very... Um, it's very unique for that to be the case um, because most guides know the Bible thoroughly, but they don't know, they don't trust Jesus as their Savior. Um, and so, Aron, one great thing about him, he's from New Zealand, and he's got this great accent. You just want to hear him talk. I mean, you want um, just to, to listen to what he has to say, but he loves Jesus. He's a great um, communicator, great teacher, um, and he was telling me one time about his process of becoming a guide. He can't just say, hey, I'm going to be a tour guide. There's actually a training, there's a licensing that the nation has him do and go through in order to be a guide. And um, again, as a guide, he's a minority as somebody who follows Christ. Um, and so he was telling me about the time he was, he was teaching at a um, school, at a um, conference, at his church, not a school, a church, and he was... Um, going through this whole thing, and, and after this weekend conference, he had gone to um, a location to be taught how to be a guide, and the location was the house of Caiaphas. And the house of Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the high priest, and it was at this location that we see um, where Peter, if you look at Luke 21, we see this is where Peter um, denied Christ three times, and this was that location. There's a first century road there, and it was, it was incredible. I'm sorry, I said Luke 21, it's Luke 22 where we see this um, so he is, he's there, and he's learning this, and as he's there, some of the other guides start pointing at him, and one of them says, hey, are you the one who was at that church teaching at that conference? The other guy goes, no, no, that wasn't him. It had to be somebody else. No, that, that look, that's him. Was that him? And Aron tells a story, and he says that he didn't want really to have the stigma now of being the, you know, the, the one person, because he wouldn't just be um, the, you know, segregated, but he would almost be mocked throughout the rest of this training. But as he's doing this, he's realizing where he is. That at this location, it's, it's traditionally, it, it's held, this is where Peter famously denied Christ. And so I shared the story in the first service and I didn't complete it. He did tell them yes after that realization. He, he said, yeah, yeah, that was me. And I'm a follower of Christ. Perhaps you, like Aron, like my friend Aron, have gone through times where you've been ashamed, maybe all the time or sometimes, to let other people know that you follow Jesus, to let them know that you believe that Jesus is the one way to the Father. Or maybe you've gone somewhere and you've had, you have a book or a Bible and you don't really want everybody to know what kind of book or what, that you have the Bible with you. Or you have a question about faith. You, somebody just lobs a softball to you and you don't take it. You don't answer. You, you, you dodge it. And you uh, don't talk about your faith or your beliefs when you get that chance. Paul writes to Christians in Rome that he, Rome, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And I want to focus on the hints of this confidence. And there's several reasons that we could go to. 
we are going to focus on two key verses in the book of Romans. All of the Bible is about Jesus. And the book of Romans is the essence of the Bible. And these two verses in chapter 1, if, you're, if you have your Bible with us, chapter 1, verse 16, these two verses are the essence of Romans. Paul writes in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God through salvation. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. My prayer is that we will discover today that like Paul, we can be certain about the gospel because it depends solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. What gave Paul this confidence? What gave him the ability to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, quick background on Paul, and we can learn all of this in the first part of Romans. We were at 16 and 17. If we were to read all of Romans 1, we'd see a lot of this. But he is an apostle. He, he, He identifies as a servant and an apostle of Christ. And an apostle, by the word, it means somebody who's sent forth to present, sent forth to sent forth by Jesus. And apostles were the official people that God used, that God ordained to proclaim the message of the gospel. Paul had an incredible salvation experience. If you look at Acts 9, you can read about that. And in Acts 9, we see that when the Lord gave a vision to Ananias, and the vision was to go and lay hands and pray over Paul, that the vision, that, that part of that, that commissioning to go do that, he says in Acts 9.15, he says, Go, this is the Lord speaking through a vision to Ananias, says, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul states in Romans that he's a bondservant, that he's officially commissioned, he's a servant of Christ, he's officially commissioned by Christ to go and preach the gospel. And for a long time, Paul had desired to go to, the Rome, to Rome. He wanted to visit the Christians in Rome. In fact, if you read through Acts, it's, a, it's actually a fascinating book to read from, from cover to cover of Acts. You see that the, the culmination is him in Rome. That's where he's going. He's trying to get to Rome. Um, not that he doesn't like these other churches, but, but the Rome is that final destination. And again, in, in chapter 1, we see that there's several reasons why he wants to get to Rome, but I'm going to give you three. One is that he might establish them in the faith. We see that in verse 11. In verse 12, we see that they, might be a, that they may be a blessing to him. And then in verse 13, that he may have some fruit among them that they may get to win Gentiles over together, that they get to do this in, in partnership you know, with the gospel. So he's wanting to get there. And so as we talk about Paul, keep in mind that he's the chosen messenger to the Gentiles and that he certainly would have had a burden on the believers and the unbelievers in that area. But um, many of the opportunities to minister, you know, he, he was hindered by all these opportunities to minister elsewhere that it wasn't Paul that was like, you know, yeah, there's Rome, and I'll, I'll get there eventually. Um, and it, it, Paul actually says, he says clearly it wasn't Satan that kept him from getting there. It was actually God because he had all these other ministry opportunities. And it wasn't time yet. And now the time, you know, the time is coming. Even when he wrote this, it wasn't quite time. So the book of Romans communicates how a holy God can allow sinful man into heaven without compromising who God is, who he is. 
Lots of scholars, as I was reading this, talk about Romans as, as an Old Testament Bible study. Every single chapter in Romans, we see Paul goes back to the Old Testament, and he's tying the Old Testament promises to the New Testament, to, to, to the gospel, to the good news. And we see this over and over again. In fact, the passage we just said, he, he um, quotes Habakkuk, and we're going to look at that a little bit closer in a minute. So let's look closer at this passage, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Let me read it to you again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to look at this piece by piece. Um, It starts out with, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word for there ties these two verses with verses 13 through 15, where I just shared that Paul is saying why he hasn't come to them yet. And this is, these are the reasons, this is what has kept him from doing that. But we have to ask the question, what is the gospel? Evangelion is, is the word. What does that mean? And the word, the word gospel literally means good news. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus has made a way for us to be right with God. The Bible's clear that we have a sin problem, that we have a, that keeps us from a holy God. And God created us without sin, but we messed it up. Our sin caused us to be separate from him. So through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can be brought back. We, we are given full access to God through trusting in him alone. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So what I deserve for sin, the paycheck I deserve for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have a friend at a church, and the way they talk about the gospel is they say, it's Jesus in our place. So four words, Jesus in our place. And that's what's happened. We're going to see that here, that there's, there's a righteousness that Paul's going to talk about, God's righteousness, that is the standard by which we are able to be in relationship with God the Father. Matt Chandler says that the cross of Christ exists because mankind loved by God, created by God, set in motion by God, betrayed God, and prefers his stuff to him. 1 John 1, 9, John says that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Notice John doesn't say that God is merciful and kind. God is merciful and God is kind, but it's not his mercy and it's not his kindness that gives us forgiveness. It's his justice. God, Jesus, Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin and not an ounce of judgment remains. So it would be unjust for God to hold the sins of Christians against them any longer. For he'd be requiring two penalties, two payments for the same sin. J.D. Greer gives this example. He says, if your spouse pays the power bill and the power company sends you a bill and expects you to make that same payment, you would, you would protest and say this is unjust. In the same way, for God to exact one drop of punishment from the believer for his sin, for the believer in Christ, for those who identify with Christ, who trust Jesus, have faith in Christ, for him to, to ask for them to pay for that would be the same. It would be requiring two penalties, two payments for the same sin. See, he's been paid in full. Jesus suffered the full extent of God's judgment. And all that's left is for acceptance and obedience. So why is Paul unashamed? Because he knows that the gospel he preaches is the God-given appointed means to bring salvation to the world. 
He's got it. He, he, he knows it. He, he, isn't, he hasn't been um, reluctant to come to Rome. He's been praying. He's been wanting to. He says, let me at them. So one reason in the delay that, that some people say is that because he's, you know, he's been delayed in going to Rome, that he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not, I'm not like, trying to figure this out before I come to you. I, I know this. I'm bold in this. Um, some speculate that Paul isn't, isn't saying that he's ashamed as much as he's saying he's excited and he's passionate to share. So it's almost he's saying it backwards. That he's using the words not ashamed to mean I'm extremely excited or I'm passionate. And it didn't always go well for Paul. Every time he preached the gospel, it didn't always happen the way you might think it did. If you, I, I encourage you to read through Acts 17 where he is in Athens and he's in front of the Areopagus and he is teaching to the Stoics and the philosophers and he's sharing, you know, this is where he's looking at, he's observing what they have and he's sharing about the good news. They wanted to hear from him and as soon as he mentions the necessity of the resurrection, it goes south and they start to mock him, they silence him, it was done. This didn't always happen, didn't always go as well. And this, this boldness, this unashamedness that, that Paul has, he, he, he cared a lot about. I mean, he asked for them, he asked for people to pray for that. Look at Philippians 1.20. He says, as it is my eager, this is Paul writing this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at, at all ashamed, but that with, my, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's go back to this text. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to skip the first fill-in. I'll get to it. Um, but there, we're, we're answering this question with the notes. That what gives Paul the confidence? What gives him the certainty that he has? And we find in verse 16 that the gospel comes through the power of God. It's God's power that gives that. That's, in, that's important. That's incredible. No wonder Paul is saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed because it's not, it's not dependent on Paul. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. It's God's power for salvation. If you were asked to somebody if they were to die right now, do you think that they would get into heaven? If you ask them that, they may say, yeah, I think I would. Then you might ask the follow-up question of, well, why do you think God would let you in? At this point, they may give you all of those things that they've done. You know, well, I, I've gone to church and I've read my Bible and I've I've served in missions, and I um, listen to these CDs, and I do all these things. They, be, they give you their list of their requirements. And who do they have their, who do they have their trust in? Who do they, I mean, they're, they're not Christians. They're not followers of Christ. They're Jasonians, or they're Mikeans, or they're Jillians. They're, they're followers of themselves. So we don't trust in the power of Jason. We don't trust in the power of enter your name in order to, to, to follow Christ. You don't, that doesn't save you. Paul states that he isn't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. I have a, I have a whole bunch of notes here. I, I'm excited to share this, but I just want to stop right here and just, just consider what I'm saying. I know I'm talking quickly. But the gospel comes through the power of God. That is amazing. That is incredible. That is reassuring. That it's, it's, not, it's not based on, you, you, you can't mess it up. It's God's power that does it. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek 
We see here, if you're taking notes, that note there is the gospel is available to everyone. The Jews are the first recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ, and they were first, and now it is available to everyone everywhere. The original recipients of this letter were the, the, the believers in the Church of Rome, and the majority of those believers were Gentiles. There was a minority of, of um, people who were Jews, and they were, they were part of that church family. God's plan to save the world began with the Jewish people. But what really matters is the gospel is available to everyone. Again, I'm answering the question of why is Paul unashamed? Why does he have such confidence? It's because it's available to everyone. He can't mess this up. He can't go, boy, I hope this applies to you or I hope it applies to you. There's nobody exempt from from that. It's available to everyone. It's not just the Jewish people anymore. The Gentiles are grafted in. And if you, I don't have time this morning, but you read through Romans, you see that. He, He spends chapters on that, talking about how that's happened. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. If you're taking notes, the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. I'm going to spend some time here on the righteousness of God. Paul spends a lot of time on the righteousness of God. What you and I are ultimately in need of is the righteousness of God. So how good, how righteous do you have to be to get to heaven? Kind of back to my question I had before. What's the standard? You have to be as good as who? You have to be as good as God. And you don't, you don't have to be as good as me. You don't have to try to be in the top 10%. You have to have the righteousness of God. The Puritans had a definition for the righteousness of God that I want to give you. And this is that first note if you're taking these um, and if you're like me, it's, it's going to take a couple times to catch what's going on here. I'm not trying to trick anybody, but listen to this. This is their definition. The righteousness of God is the righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. <laughs> Think about it. Just, I'll do it a couple times. The righteousness of God is the righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. I needed it at least one more time when I, when I first saw this. It's, it's, it's that standard. What, what is that level? What is the standard of God's righteousness? The righteousness of God is the righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. And Paul's quoting Psalm 13 there. Where's the only place you can look for to get the righteousness of God? In God himself, he's going to have to require it. So the righteousness that the righteousness of God requires is found in the gospel. The penalty of sin is paid and the provision of righteousness is there. From faith to faith here, we see this is is a pretty curious phrase. John Piper writes that when the revelation of the gift of righteousness meets with faith, it leads to future faith. Faith is the initial window of the soul that lets the light of revelation of righteousness in. And when the light of God's gift of righteousness comes in by faith, it powerfully works to awaken and and sustain and engender more and more faith for the years to come. So it starts with faith. The initial step is faith. That's what, if you are here this morning and you go, you know, I don't don't identify as a Christian. I don't follow Jesus Christ. What what you do in order to take that step is, is, is you take a step of faith and you obey and what, what happens with that faith is it leads to more faith. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not, faith isn't just what you need at the beginning of this. That faith leads to further faith. So it's faith for faith, as we see in, in Romans 1. 
Look at what Paul writes later in Romans um, 3, and I'm actually going to start at verse 21, which I don't think is going to be on your screen, but verse 22 will. So verse 21 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment in full by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. And the righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. That's where that happens. Those, so, let, so let me, back to um, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and for, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you're taking notes, those who are declared righteous are given life. Paul's quoting Habakkuk here, and Paul didn't need to tell his original audience this passage is from Habakkuk. If I'm honest, I needed someone to tell me that this was from Habakkuk. I don't have my Habakkuk down well enough to know this. This passage is very, uh, is, is somewhat popular. It's actually quoted three other, two other times in the New Testament. So it's quoted here and two other times. It's quoted in Romans 1, it's quoted in Galatians 3.11, and again in Hebrews 10.38. In the context, the righteous are those who will survive the judgment because they have faith or they are faithful to God. And Paul applies this text to those who trust in Jesus and are saved from final judgment. And there's a transfer of righteousness that takes place in this passage. It starts with God's righteousness, as if you look at the flow of the passage, and it, it goes to man's. The quote is um, from the Old Testament shows that Paul has in mind, I'm quoting a, a scholar, the quote from the Old Testament shows what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the gospel revealing the righteousness of God. It's not mainly that God himself is righteous, but that he imputes or he credits his righteousness to man so that man may be just or righteous. So let me just talk a little bit about being justified. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean to be made righteous. That will happen. But, but what it happens is, so, so to be, when we're justified, we're not, now, we're, now we're righteous people, we're declared righteous. What God does for us in justification or being declared righteous is similar to what a judge does in a court. He does not change the defendant. He doesn't make them different than they were by declaring them innocent. See, see God approves us, he, he accepts us, and then he changes us. It's vitally important for us to realize this, that in justification, God doesn't change us, but he accepts us as we are. He insists on changing us once we have been accepted. This is, this is why it's important, because perhaps you, you struggle with your worth. You struggle if you're worthy enough for Christ to accept you. Well, none of us are worthy enough. It's through what he's done, not the best of us. The gospel is precisely the good news because it announces that God accepts us anyway. 
All we have to do is receive his offer in faith and be sure a faith must be accompanied with obedience. We see this in Romans 1, 5. says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. But we don't live by our good deeds. We live by our faith. That's what we see here in verse 17. So back to your notes. Why does Paul have confidence in the gospel? Well, the gospel comes through the power of God. The gospel is available to everyone. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. Those who are declared righteous are given life. And finally, the gospel is the only way to be declared righteous. I want to read through this passage again to you, and I want to emphasize two very small words. Let me read this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see that Paul doesn't say the gospel is a way for salvation. It is the way. We just celebrated and we, we prayed over commissioned these seniors, these, these seniors who are going off into whatever is next after high school. And I, as I think about them, and I, they already know this because they live in this culture now, but culturally we have a climate that says to believe in Jesus is the only way to salvation is, is intolerant, is unloving. It's not accepting, that it's hypocritical. There's no way that you could do that because, there's, because let's face it, there are, so, there are a lot of good people out there, right? A lot of really nice people, a lot of people doing really great things. And for us to say that God wouldn't forgive them, who are we to say that? Why would we say that? And I see us sending these students into that that climate of what will they do there with that. And I fear this is one of the main reasons why Christians cower or become ashamed. They doubt that there can really only be one way. Again, the measure of of righteousness is not our righteousness. It's not our, our deeds. It's not what we do. It's not how good we can be. It's not, look, be sure you do more good things than bad things. That's not the standard. The standard is God's righteousness. So why is it so crazy for us to believe that there is only one way? Why is that so hard? It should cause us to be grateful. We can't mess this up. It's clear. There's a view you'll encounter, ironically, at universities, students, where you, at places of higher education where you'll learn that there's really nothing you can actually know based on what they might say. If our story is really true in the deep sense, then it ought to be obvious that other religious stories, other ways about this, aren't true. They're simply mistaken. Um, Some religions teach that Jesus is the Son of God and others deny it. Um, Fair enough. But it's clear that somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. Do you hear that? One author writes this. He says, To many, the Christian story seems so narrow in light of today's sensibilities that it's almost suffocating. Only one way to heaven? That is nearly impossible for most people to take seriously. It's not only incredible, it borders on bigotry. So even though it's all the rage today to say all religions are basically the same, that can't be true. We should be alarmed at how really unlike each other they are. There's something that confidence and assurance can do in the life of a believer. And I hope you've had that. I hope you'll, you'll seek that. 
Jesus, as he was, as he was leaving, he had these disciples who he had been with, and he, he, had, he knew, by knowing what's going to happen, he knew that he was about to leave them in this really difficult time, that they were going to face persecution, they were going to face doubt, they were going to face a lack of confidence. And what he did at the end um, is he, he shared three relationships with them, three ways for them to, to understand and embrace that, that his love is not going to leave them, he wanted, to, he wanted to infuse assurance. He wanted to infuse confidence in them. And he gives three different examples. First was his, his beloved children. These are all found in John. In John 14, 18, we see that I will not leave, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A faithful father does not leave his kids wondering, wondering whether or not he loves them. That would not produce love and loyalty in my children. When I go away on a trip, I don't say, Daddy's going away on a trip. I'm coming back, I think, maybe. You know, you'll have to wait and see if I come back. No, I, they know I'm coming back. They know that I love them. Um, that would not produce love and loyalty in my children if I had them wondering if I was coming back. If I don't want my own children fearing that they might be orphans, why would God? So he tells them that. Do we really think that we're better fathers to our children than God would be to his Hardly. The love God has for us. Look at this in John 15. He says, as the, love, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Look at that. That's amazing. Jesus loves us like God the Father loved him. And he wants us to have the same assurance with him that he had with God. So think about this. The same love the perfect Father has for the perfect Son he gives us. Our everlasting Father has for us. So we're his beloved children. We're also his bride. That's the second one that he gives us. The second relationship. He wants his disciples, he wants us as his church, his bride, to know that we're his bride. John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Some have noted that Jesus' language here is bridal language. It's filled with wedding imagery. In Jesus' day, a young man or a suitor would travel to his beloved home, throw a party, request her hand in marriage, and assuming she said yes, he would return to his father's home and he would begin construction on a room attached to the family home, family living space. And when their place was completed, he would return for her. But before leaving, he would pledge his love. He would say, I'm coming back. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave his church, his beloved bride, the same confidence. He spoke to us in wedding language so that we would have the confidence of the waiting bride. And having that confidence should help us to, to want to, um, to give our love or our affection to other things, to, to resist the enticements of sin. So he calls us his beloved children he calls us his bride, and then he also calls us his friend. John 15, 15, Jesus calls his disciples his friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus wants to be sure of his friendship with us. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for who? For his friends. Perhaps you've had a friend who's betrayed you or shown you who, who once they, they learn something about you, they, they stop being your friend. They're like, I, I, can't, I, no, I can't do that. That's not what Jesus is doing here. See, Jesus, from the beginning, he saw it all. He knows it all. 
and he chooses you. He couldn't have chosen three more intimate and precious relationships where his children, where his bride, where his friends. Here's the main idea. Here's, here's the point. So like Paul, we can have confidence. We can be certain about the gospel because it depends solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's huge. That's important. I want to give you a few thoughts, a few ways to apply this. And there's, there's probably obvious things as you're thinking about this, as you're hearing this. Perhaps this is the day for you. Perhaps this is the day where you make that decision, that faith decision to say, you know what? I don't want to live for myself anymore. I can't do this. I can't pile up my works and my, my achievements and what I've done, more good than bad, hopefully, and, and enter heaven. I can't enter that relationship. I need Jesus. And perhaps that's, that's for you today, and I want to invite you to that. We're going to sing a song when I'm finished here, and I, and I just want to encourage you during that song to just let that be your prayer, to, to, to take that step of faith. If, if, and, that, and if that is you, I encourage you to tell someone about that. You can come talk to me. I'd love to hear that. But, but tell someone that, that today is your day. Tell someone that you, you made that step. You took that step of faith. So, that, so that's one. Second thing is I want you to, um, I want to encourage all of us as a church body, as we, as we hear this sermon, as we read um, Romans 1, 16 and 17, we hear this, this could be like this pep rally where we go, yeah, I'm not ashamed either. We're in this room and we're not ashamed in this room. But let this be a charge. And it, I, I, was, I was convicted as I was working through this for the last couple weeks that there are not a lot of environments where I even need to say I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I love being able to be here with you. I love being able to work with our students. But, but I, I really don't have to stand here and say I'm ashamed of the gospel in this location, right? It, so I want to encourage you to look for ways, look for environments, look for arenas where you get to be bold, where you get to be confident, where you get to, to, be, to, to be maybe uncomfortable with this. Are you in that environment where you have the chance to be bold, the chance to live out the gospel, the chance to verbally share the good news? Who are you praying for who doesn't know who Christ is? The third, I want to I encourage you, um, Jerry Bridges is an author, and he wrote that, um, he, he famously wrote that he preaches the gospel to himself each day. Well, he's, he's passed, but this is what he's, he's encouraged believers to do. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself that you are redeemed by the blood and the, for, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, our tendency as Christians is we go back to our own righteousness. Maybe even this morning you're like, yeah, it's God's righteousness. Yep, it's the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require, or whatever you said, Jason. But yeah, but then it slips back to our own and our own things that we do. And Jerry Bridges knew this, and so he said, preach the gospel to yourself each day. And the way he did this is he would start his days with confession of, of the sins that he knew were in his heart. He, he would repent of those. And then he would, um, he would reflect on the promises of forgiveness found in Scripture. I'm going to give you one. It's in Romans. Romans is full of them. Romans 8.1 says, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So preach the gospel to yourself. And finally, I want to encourage you to, be, to consider being unashamed of the gospel by, pro, by publicly proclaiming your love for Christ in baptism. I'm going to show you a picture. This picture this is from our last church baptism. This is my oldest daughter, Karis. I love this picture. I can't even look at it or I'm going to start crying. I'm going to look at it. Um, 
But Karis, last year, she was public. I had permission to show this. She wanted the world to know she wanted to go public with her faith, public with her relationship with Jesus Christ. She wanted to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And some of you have done this. Some of you haven't. And I want to encourage you to start thinking about this, start praying about baptism. September 10th is when we're going to have our next baptism. I, have, I do not have a way for you to sign up or any of that right now because we got time. But if you haven't, maybe, again, you're, today's your day where you're going to walk across that, step, that faith line. You're going to accept that gift that Jesus is offering you. You're, think about that if that's, if that's you. Or perhaps you've been a follower of Christ for a while, but you just haven't been baptized. I just really want to encourage you to think about that for this year, to think about being unashamed in that way. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come forward. We're going to sing. And again, if, uh, if, it's, your, uh, if it's your day, all of us, as we sing this song, I want to encourage you to, to, to think about the words, not the emotion of the song, but as we praise God through these words, I want to encourage you to consider what he's done in your, in your place. Father, I thank you so much for the love that you have for us. I thank you that it's clear in your gospel, that it's not about us, that it's all about your finished work, that we can be confident in that, that we can know you, we can be in relationship with you because of what you have done. I pray for the person in this room who today is their day. That We thank you that you are rejoicing with them in heaven. We pray for those who um, are still, still, still seeking that out, still asking questions. Father, we thank you that you love us with, that you offer us a way for, to be with you, and that's through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.